Hello all and welcome to a Sunday episode of Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics here with Everald Compton. As always, how are you? I'm, I'm well, James. I'm well and I'm, I'm, I'm after a nice Sunday afternoon nap. I'm ready to get into it. So you, I, I think we're, we might have to say a few unkind words about Christian Porter. Just, well, no, the Nats, no, we're going to talk about the Nationals first. Now you tell me I understand their meeting as we speak. Now, you tell me what you think the score is there. Well, last week we talked about what we could expect from the Nationals this week. And last week we talked about how, uh, to us, the Nationals stood up for big coal and no one else. And you mentioned how, you know, 100 years ago when the Nats were the country party, uh, they traded the, what was it, the leather boots for the leather chairs um, and turned into (laughs) city slickers when they came into Canberra. And uh, nothing we've seen from the Nationals this week has gone any way to dispelling that promise. They've looked obstructionist. They've looked shambolic. There's still been no target reached. To be fair, um, as someone who does care about net zero and does want progressive climate policy, I don't exactly buy that Scott Morrison's committed to it either. Um, but he's at least ready to pretend to performatively be committed to it for, to the extent that it serves his political goals. Um, but the Nationals have leaned even further towards the how are we going to pay for it, all those old, old tropes, and there's been no progress. We're sitting here one week and one day later. Uh, we said last week to our listeners we'd evaluate how the Nationals have done, and they've given us nothing to evaluate. <laughs> well, true. Now, look, just recap me for right where they did start off when there was a definite need for a country party straight after World War I, 1917, I think it was. I think they called themselves the Farmers' Federation or something, and they started off as a country party, and even though they sort of tried to get into government rather than be on the crossbench arguing for, for the country party, they finally, years later, decided how to change their name and become the Nationals. They felt that they, come, that they could win suburban seats, and so they ceased to sort of understand what they stood for at that point, and I think from then on there's been some... Uh, struggle to find relevance. Now, I think finally they've decided they're going nowhere and, and they want to become relevant. Now, they've decided that the way to make themselves relevant is to, is to get involved in climate change. And I think they've made the wrong choice because I think they've torpedoed themselves mightily. They've got to get down to talking about the things that worry farmers and worry the bush. That's the high cost of transport the high cost of energy, the high cost of water, the absence of doctors and nurses uh, out in the country, you know, no decent, uh, no decent health services, the fact that uh, they struggle to provide adequate university education for people in country areas, actually close down agricultural colleges. And they need to get back to where they came from. They need to decide they're the rural party of Australia. If country doesn't sound right, one I'm saying the rural part. And what does do the rurals need now? Right now, the rurals need climate change to be addressed because it's wrecking their, their, their effectiveness in trading with the world. And instead of worrying about what it's going to cost, they've got to sit down and work out how, how rural people are going to make some money. And I think their search for relevance. They picked climate change and made a hell of a mess of it. Now, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, I think that search for relevant points is point is a really good one. And um, I don't think history will look kindly on the 2021 National Party. But 
there are so many issues that they could take up the mantle for the bush for. I mean, you point out a lot of economic ones and social ones too, like education. You look at the terribly um, disparate health outcomes for Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians who live in country areas compared to um, people who live in the city and people who live in the suburbs. Um, you look at those economic indicators like income, wealth, and sure, housing is cheap in a broken hill, but as you point out, the transport to these rural and regional areas and the infrastructure in and around them is just atrocious. Not the there. nationals have been, you know, nationals have been too busy sort of funneling money in and around the big coal companies who destroy these areas rather than funneling money into infrastructure projects that um, build them up. It seems the only infrastructure projects that do go on in these areas are uh, $5.5 million gun club grants to the uh, romantic partners of then treasurers going by the New South Wales NATS record. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know what you think about the, the shooters, what they call themselves, the shooters, the hmm. farmers and the fishermen. Now, I had some discussions with them this week. I know some of them well because uh, there's, a, there's a couple of the shooters party in the New South Wales Parliament are going to vote yes to voluntary assisted dying legislation when it's voted for in the Parliament, whereas the country party at Nationals are sitting on the fence and so the shooters are, are stealing the ground on them. Now, I said to them, look, I can't warm up to any party that's called shooters. I wish you fellas would find yourself a better name, but I believe that they're showing in the fact that they won seats in both houses of the New South Wales Parliament last time, and I think they'll take a few more off the Nationals this time. All they're showing is that the fact that a party called the Shooters, which should be terribly unpopular, can win seats from the Nationals. And I think they'll run seats in the, run candidates in the federal election. Now, all it points out to is there is the potential to destroy the national, when you look at it, the nationals get about 9% of the vote overall in an Australian election, and they get 15 seats or whatever it is. The Greens get 12 or 13% in the election, they get one seat in the House, which tells you there's something wrong with the democratic process, isn't there? Well, you're exactly right. Um, we've talked before about um, making things a bit fairer. I know you're a big opponent of the concept of the Senate, um, and I'm sure one day we'll talk about how to better, um, I think we have talked about how to better address um, those sorts of democratic imbalances. I remember coming down in favour of that New Zealand and German style proportional representation system. I think we agreed on where parties get a proportion of seats in parliament based on their vote, not yeah. just based on arbitrary geographic seats. But on the shooters, um, I think a couple elections ago, they were just called the Shooters and Fishers Party. But whoever the bigwigs are at their head offices have realised that the nationals have totally abandoned the farmers. So they've slapped farmers on to become the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party um, to appeal to that farmer demographic. And like you say, it's working. They now have seats in um, the New South Wales Federal Parliament, seats, uh, I think, Barwon up in very far northwest of New South Wales is where the Shooters and the Fishers are. there's a bloke. And there's these. He's in favour of voluntary assistance. No, he's a good bloke. I don't think the nationals are ever going to get rid of him. Well... That's good to hear that we've got good blokes representing the farmers up there now because I, I trust your evaluation. Uh, you're, you're generally a pretty good judge of character. So to hear, like, I haven't obviously had any intimate contact with anyone in the Shooters Party myself, but seeing that at least, because you look at the Nationals, and I think I've said it before, they're just the Liberals in cowboy hats. There's no independence, no free thought, no breaking with the party line um, when it doesn't, meet what the farmers actually need. Whereas the shooters here, 
pursuing VAD legislation. Uh, that, that's never something you'd see the Nationals do. And look, I think the Nationals, you know, and when we know how the end reaction is, what happens, I mean, Morrison knows that he could ignore them totally because if he says, I'm going to go to, to Glasgow with a certain zero thing for 2030 and then 2050, what, what, you know, the Labor Party will vote for him on the floor of Parliament. He'll get it through. I mean, the Labor Party will cross over and vote with him and leave the Nats all by himself. So I don't know why other than the fact that he wants to be friendly with the Nats, I don't know why the hell he's worrying, because he knows he can go to Glasgow and with the Parliament behind him if he took a vote, couldn't he? Well, exactly right. Whenever we see Nationals uh, members threaten to kick up a stink and cross the floor if they don't support the farmers, you know, the one or two rare occasions every parliamentary year that the Nats do stick up for the farmers, the threats always turn out to be paper tigers. I mean, Morrison just... just throws some money at the mining companies and throws some money at the biggest corporate farmers uh, rather than average Aussie farmers. And then the Nats quiet down and vote for whatever he wants. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, anyway, we, 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 we can move on. But can I say, having spent a lot of time with them, there have been some giants in the National Party back at the time when it was the country party. And, and I remember Blackjack McEwen, who was the bloke who represented Australian farmers when Britain went into the economic community years ago and cut off our markets. And he was an absolute giant, Blackjack McEwen. Fellas like Doug Anthony, who was the leader of the Nationals for a long time, a giant. Here in Queensland, we had a marvellous old Premier, Frank Nicklin, who was a good old farmer, and he represented the farmer. And I remember those blokes with great fondness, whereas the blokes now, I think, are running around like headless chooks, really, and, 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 and it's, you know, not getting them. Anyway, but look, look moving on to things, uh, I was a bit disturbed about how uh, the Liberals killed off the Speaker, Tony Smith, over the, the, the Christian Porter business. Now, you, you're a lawyer, maybe you must understand blind trust more than me. I think all the hours are cover-up. But anyway, tell me, what do you make of Christian Porter? Well, what we saw in Parliament was... Um... The Speaker referring, well, for people who might not have listened to all our shows or might not have been keeping up with the news, as part of his uh, defamation suit against the ABC, Christian Porter received a million-dollar donation to his legal fees from something that he called a blind trust. Now, um, recently he, he said he, you know, it's totally anonymous, he doesn't know who this money's coming from, yada, yada, yada. Now, this week, uh, Tony Smith, the Speaker, uh, referred him said there was sufficient grounds for referring him to the Privileges Committee, which is one of those standing parliamentary committees that investigates donations and whether or not they need to be disclosed and that sort of thing. In 120 years of Parliament, uh, every speaker's reference to the Privileges Committee has gone to the Privileges Committee. Uh, this was the first time in history that a government has voted to block one of their own members being referred to the Privileges Committee. Uh, there are a couple of reasons one can speculate for that. Uh, I think there's two of them uh, that hold weight uh, and they're both sort of related and together. The first being, if Christian Porter does go to the Privileges Committee and it comes out that his donor is some sort of dark money, shadow money interest manipulating uh, the former Attorney General, he probably has to resign, which would trigger a by-election in the seat of Pierce, which he holds. The Liberals only have a one-seat majority in Parliament. It could put them into majority, minority government with Bob Catter before the next election. The second reason is because I think the people in Canberra, 
Scott Morrison, Christian Porter, maybe some others, know where the money has come from and they don't want us to find out. And I think those are the two big reasons they've blocked this investigation into where the money's come from. Oh, well, I think you, 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 you're absolutely right. If, if, if there's a by-election over there and Christian Porter would lose it, then therefore there'd be a minority. So it's all about his seat. Bear in mind that Craig Kelly sits in the cross bench and they've technically lost their majority uh, anyway. You wouldn't know what Craig Kelly was going to do any day of the week. And so it's all to do with what but it was bad. Tony Smith is a is as decent a bloke as I've seen as the speaker. And you know, and, and why they see there are two things. One is they broke a 120-year convention, but the other one was they insulted a, a good speaker for no valid reason. And I think Australian people are looking at that and saying, well, the speaker is supposed to represent the people in the parliament to make sure there is proper debate, that everything is a fair go and whatever. When they undermine the speaker, they undermine the whole issue of democracy. And that's what uh, that's what worries me. But anyway, one way or another, I believe that Porter is going to lose his seat in the next day. I think I understand from my friends in Mexico that a very high-profile independent female, I understand, is going to run against Porter. And I think you'll find that the ALP will run dead in the election so, so that this, this person comes in second or might even come in first, but the ALP preferences will cut them over line and Porter's, Porter's gone. And so I think the Australian the people of Pierce can represent Australia and fix this thing at the next election. But nevertheless, that doesn't alter the fact that what was done was, uh, was utterly wrong, was it? Well, exactly right. Um, we live in, you know, a country where, we have elections every three years, and that's every three, unless they're called earlier. And that's the people's only chance to properly set things right. Um, until, unless and until there is an election, we have to rely on these democratic processes and traditions and whatnot to be observed for things to be set right. Um, because me and you right now have no power to knock on Christian Porter's door and say, buddy, you're out, <laughs> no matter how much we want it. So, unless and until an election's called, um, we need to rely on the elected representatives to uphold these traditions and standards. And by voting to block an investigation into a $1 million quote-unquote unknown donation to a former Attorney General's legal fight, again, I think you and I both think he knows where the money comes from and there's nothing blind about it. <laughs> but for, for blocking such an investigation, uh, the current government has slapped in the face not just the Speaker, but every person who cares about free, fair, responsible and independent government. Mm -hmm. And the uh, significance of that cannot be overstated. Right, it's bad. Well, by the way, talking about elections, I mean, I think Christian Porter's in his final months in Parliament, he'll get kicked out and he'll never, he'll never get back. And, and I think most Australians will think that's a, that's a very good thing, no matter what your politics uh, Happen to be, but so we'll look at the election now. My, I think I forecast last week that I think that uh, Morrison will hold the election at the end of February. He'll wait till Australians get back from their holiday and end of January, and you've got to have about a five week so end, end of February, early March. He's got to go before then because New South Wales has got to have an election, I think, at the end of March, isn't it? Or is it a year away? Uh, yeah, we're, we're 2023 for our next one. Oh, so. okay. Anyway, I think he'll go last week of February, first week of March. A couple of reasons. A hell of a lot of Australians will be vaccinated by then. If they're not, well, then there's something grossly wrong with the, 
distribution of it. Most people feel a bit happy after they've been away for had a holiday for Christmas. Morrison's doing his best to get borders and state and international borders open for Christmas, so he looks like the guy who's giving everybody a good uh, Christmas. And so I think you know, that's when he'll go. And it's interesting to know that he's already started the what you might call a disinformation campaign. On the other hand, you could say it's cunning politics. He's now turned the climate change thing into saying the Labor Party favours climate change and that is going to cost you your job. Now, he's going to do the same thing as he did with Bill Shorten. He had one speech last time. Bill Shorten is a total bastard and he's going to pinch your money. That's the end of it. That's what he said. Now he's going to say, Albo is in favour of climate change and you will lose your job, and he'll repeat that one million times in the election campaign, and there's enough illiterate voters out there to believe him. And so I, I think he will he will hammer that away, and he'll be having a beer with the boys with his, with his shark shirt on and his cap on, saying, I'm a good bloke. I might have made a few mistakes, mate, but hell, you know, I'm, I'm a better bloke than Alpo, just, just full of them. And that's the campaign he'll run. Uh, now, my hope is that the Australian election electors will say, well, I don't want either of them, and put in enough independence uh, so that th there is a hung parliament. And, uh, and, and uh, then it depends on whether he's got more seats than Albo, uh, and they'll have to, there's somebody who's going to be a minority government. Now, what, what, what's your read on it? I think you're entirely right about Morrison's campaign and what it's going to be like. He's, he's going to whack on his shark's hat and his shark's jersey and go down to the pub with his beers. And he, he's already, um, past couple of weeks, been doing a bunch of his daggy dad posts on social media. A couple of weeks ago, he did uh, this really cringe photo of him making a curry. Uh, look at me, I'm Scott Morrison and I'm relatable because I make a curry. How good's Australia? <laughs> but the, the thrust of the Morrison campaign is always, yeah, I, I'm a better bloke than the guy on the other side. Um, while I find that statement unequivocally wrong, um, I hope this time around is when he pulls the elbow is going to take your money statement. Um, what Labor needs to do is adopt ambitious green policy. So not just saying we're going to shut down the mines and we're going to shut down the coal plants, etc. That's only step one. Step two has got to be, and we're going to find new jobs for these people in industry A, B and C. In clean energy, we're going to find new jobs for these people. In transport infrastructure, we're going to find jobs for these people. In nation building, we're going to find jobs for these people. Because people have to be sure, um, the, well, the only way to defeat that misinformation campaign of the Labor Party's going to take your job is to turn right around and say, well, no, we're going to give you a bigger, better job. Um, and I think that's what that ambitious level of climate policy is what Labor needs to do to, to win the climate debate. Well, well okay, come back then. Morrison is able to put on his shark shirt and beer with the boys he kept on and be the daggy dad and all that. Now, Albo does not have that ability. Albo is a decent bloke. I like him as a person. Uh, uh, you know, but he doesn't have the ability to look like the average Aussie and you'll never see Albo making curry somewhere or, or whatever. Now, he wouldn't want to, want to appear and say, well, I'm a, I'm a better daggy dad than, than Morrison. But I think that Albert's got to come up with a character trait that he purports you. Elections are all about images. And if Morrison's got this image that got him over the last line last time and might get him over the line this time, what 
persona to an elbow get so that people think, well, that elbow's a good bloke. He's totally different to Morrison, but he's a good bloke. And right now, elbow's almost anonymous and he doesn't set people on fire when he talks. But if elbow could get a character that the Australian public hooked onto, he could win now. What sort of character do you reckon elbow should portray himself as? Um, I suppose the the first thing I'll say to that is the most ironic part of everything you've just said, and I think in the minds of a lot of voters, uh, a lot of voters think that way. But the most ironic part about that, of course, is um, Albo grew up in social housing in Marrickville. He's been a South Sydney Rabbitohs fan all his life and grew up entirely um, working class, whereas Morrison was the son of the police commissioner, grew up in Waverley, went to Sydney Boys or Sydney Grammar, one of the two, and only discovered the Cronulla Sharks when the Federal Liberal Party parachuted him into the seat of Cook. He was a rugby union fan before that. Then uh, suddenly upon becoming parachuted into his federal seat, four years later, he discovers the Cronulla Sharks. So the the most, to me, offensive part about Morrison's daggy dad persona is the fact that it's just entirely confected and smacks of lies. But he gets away with it, mate. He gets away. Yeah. has got to outflank him. He's never going to stop Morrison doing that. And there'll always be Australian public who clap that because Morrison's got the ability to sell himself. And Elbow can't, at the moment, sell himself. And I think he's got to find it. Now, for instance, it is possible. A lot of people, when Elbow says, I oh, came up with a poor family and, and you know, and, uh, and what have you, a lot of people sort of think, yeah, well, he's using that to try and get some sort of sympathy. Whereas Paul Keating came from exactly the same baby. Well, he, he had two parents, but they were very poor. Came from exactly the same. But he had a way of conveying himself to the public as if he was uh, something a bit special without sort of grandstanding. And, and he, he looked like, you know, the local boy who'd come good and he, he was a musician at one point and got this persona all of his own. I went to see on Friday night with him, I went to see this great play, The Gospel According to Paul, in which Jonathan McCarthy Higgins portrayed Keating. It's an absolute classic of the Keating character. And he had the audience, full as far as I could see, a lot of conservative people that I knew laughing like hell about the Keating persona. Now, somewhere or other, Albo's got to get a persona and he hasn't got that at this point. Yeah, I think if there's one thing Albo can do to really stamp his mark on an election campaign, it's talking about corruption. Um, corruption is corruption and women's rights are the two big things I think Albo can make himself out to be a champion of because those are two themes that any credible opposition, any credible opposition, sorry, would hammer this government on. Their record on the treatment of women has been absolutely atrocious. The I've said it like in four of these shows, but I'm, I'm still absolutely disgusted by um, when that Women's March for Justice was going on in Canberra and Morrison refused to meet with them and said, oh, well, in another country, they would have been shot, so they should be grateful. Um, not to mention protecting uh, old Mr Porter, who uh, I best not say anything more else a defamation suit comes my way. Um, the treatment of women amongst this party, this electoral cycle has just been atrocious. Uh, corruption, we've touched upon corruption before. Not just the million dollar blind trust, but the sports rort scandal. Everything that's been going on in the Riverina with the money they've been funneling into the into the destruction of the Murray-Darling Basin. Um, the backing Clive Palmer's legal challenge to try to not get a WA's hard water. Um, this government's absolute refusal 
to create a federal independent commission against corruption. So if Albo brands himself as someone who stands against these um, issues that are sort of fundamental to democracy, uh, you know, the treatment of women and faith in your elected representatives, I think that's where he can really skew Morrison because those are two areas where unequivocally this government has let the country down. Yeah, well, the problem is it still comes down to images and I believe that people, elections are now won by images, they're not won by, by policies. And, and, and Morrison won the last election on images. I mean, Bill Shorten had the greatest collection of policies that I've ever seen that any government have. There were too many of them for people to understand was part of the problem. But they went into enormous depths about policy and some of their policies were quite extraordinarily good, but it still win the election because people in the final, enough people in the final round just didn't like Bill Shorten as a person. Now, at the moment, they look at Albo as a non-person. He's just not electrifying them. And I still think this election is going to come down to Albo's persona, his, the, way, the way he does things. Now, I think he's got to, to work out a way in which he can identify uh, with, with women in, in, in what's happening, identify with small businesses out there that are going broke because of COVID-19. I don't think the public listened to corruption. They got on their mind that all politics is corrupt, so one will do the other. I think you've got to identify with the small business broke who's struggling, you know, out there. The, the casual worker who doesn't get the casual work they used to get, the university students who can't do that, I think he's got to identify with uh, a different set of things than uh, let Morrison take the footy fans, but Albo looks like a good bloke getting out there, helping people in strife without condemning everybody and what. And I think he could have that uh, have that persona, and I think that's the big challenge that's in front of him. Now, now we're starting to run out of time, James, but we can... Uh, we can continue this because uh, I am not convinced that Morrison, but I am very much convinced that we'll end up having a hung parliament because the public of Australia will decide they don't want either of them. And, and, and that's going to be a very interesting thing. And the Labor Party's got to hope that Albo gets a couple more seats than Morrison. So he's the one that gets first go at negotiating with the, you know, with the independents. And that would be the way the ALP would get uh, into power, but that's how things go now. Now, I think that uh, next week, uh, with a bit of luck, uh, James, we might know what the National Party's policy is and what uh, Morrison's going to Glasgow about. Uh, mm -hmm. So, I think we, we might get a, a you know a little bit uh, more enlightened about uh, about that next week, and perhaps we can talk about uh, what's going to happen in Glasgow. For instance, I understand that one of the clauses in the draft agreement that they're going to try and agree on in Glasgow said that no government should back a coal miner or a fossil fuel industry in any shape or form. And the Aussies are going to say we don't agree with that clause. Now, I think they might get outvoted by, you know, if there's 180 nations there, you know, about the only ones who might vote with Morrison would be that bloke in Brazil. You know, it, it could be that he's left. And so I think we ought to discuss what's going to happen in Glasgow, shouldn't we? Other than the fact that Scotty's on some of a hell of a lot of Scotch whiskey, I reckon. <laughs> Sounds good. And um, I saw someone on Twitter post that they think what, what Morrison is going to do over there is largely try to harpoon the negotiations and water everything down in bad faith. And I'm not inclined to disagree with that person's assessment. 
I think the one other thing, um, Albo, now, climate policy, Labor, the Labor Party has taken a better climate policy to every election for the, for the past 150 years. But um, we talked about, you know, the nationals at the start of this episode. And in the third part of this episode, we talked about how, how, how Albo can differentiate himself with Morrison. The longer this shambles goes on with the nationals, I uh, imagine the people at the Parliamentary Labor Party are sitting back and rubbing their hands together and thinking, this is great. So I suppose that's my last observation. That um, Except they might be saying this is great, but Labor does not have, as I can see it, a policy for the bush. The people in the bush, they might be brushed off with the nationals, and the, but Labor hasn't come up with a, it's not so much a policy, a view that if you vote for Labor, the Bush is going to do real good. And I think Albo's got to put a hell of a... Because if he took those 15 National Party seats because he really got the Bush steamed up, he's home. But, but he hasn't got that, has he? No. And I mean, um, <laughs> that, that's one thing, really. I don't think any major political party has a policy for the Bush. <laughs> the Nationals have a party for the big corporate farmers and the coal mines. Um, but... You've probably got the shooters, fishers, and farmers as the party with the um the most defined plan for the bush. Maybe Bob Catter has something to say in that regard. Well, <laughs> I, I think our Bob he might be more partial than I am for our Bob, but you know anyway. But I'll tell you what, between now and next weekend when we have our our chat, um, uh, uh, I'm going to Rockhampton, the Rockhampton Capricorn Enterprises, which is the regional development group. Uh, Rockhampton, Gladstone and all the towns around have invited me up to be a speaker at their annual forum they have on the development of the Capricorn region and I'll be with a lot of people from the central Queensland and, and I'm one of the keynote speakers and I'm going to ask a few of them exactly the questions that you and I have had oh, there'll be drinks and whatever you after it all and I hope I can come back with a little bit more persona about uh, or a little bit more knowledge rather about what the people of Central Queensland at least are uh, thinking about. But it's good to talk to you, James, and we look forward to uh, uh, to next weekend. So, so bye for now. Yep, ciao for now. As always, have a good one. Thanks for listening.